Hello, listeners. Earl at thelogbook.com here to let you know that the logbook has a new pengo. Wait, did I say pengo? Did I perhaps mean Patreon instead of perhaps a pixelated penguin that plays popcorn? Yes, I definitely meant the logbook has a new Patreon. Basically, if you like what the logbook does, the ever-expanding site, the monthly and in some cases daily podcasts, and the book spin-offs from both, you can help us keep going by becoming our patron at Patreon. There are goodies in it for you from access to show notes, to trading cards, to even having me do voice work for you. And you get to help me in the logbook do what we do every night, trying to take over the world and turn it into a great big geekosphere. Thanks, as always, for listening, for your feedback, and for your support. Mr. Announcer? The yum. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The city giver's dead. Oh, my God. Do not give this tape to Earl. Welcome to the March 2017 edition of Don't Give This Tape to Earl, a podcast of extraordinary magnitude from thelogbook.com. I'm Earl Green overthinking it as usual last month's <laughs> last month's edition of this podcast was recorded partway through January and indeed this edition most of this edition is being recorded on a stupidly warm February night we've got to talk about this it is nine o'clock p.m. on February 23rd a Thursday February 23rd and it is 70 degrees outside and I have the windows open and I have fans on or I would be sweating to death while I'm sitting here talking to you February for those of you who perhaps are not in the United States February is a winter month in the US it is not supposed to be this warm I am scared to death about how warm it's going to be when it hits July this year oh I'm mainly scared to death of my electric bill from having to run air conditioning. <sighs> yeah, I'm sitting here sweating right now. I mean, I, yeah, there's not enough fan to stop it, and it's February. It scares the crap out of me. Some of my electric bills last year, last summer. Nope, nope, don't want to do that again. And yet, at the same time... You know, I've got cats over here. I've got my kids over here. What am I going to do? You know, it's not like you just, you know, if it was just me, I'd say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll sweat it out. I'll keep the windows open. Run some fans. Get some more fans and run them. You know, and at some point you've got so many fans running that you might as well be running AC. I'm not looking forward to this summer. One little phenomenon that cropped up in last month's don't give this tape to Earl, was that there was some news that got left by the wayside because it happened after I recorded the show. And I tried to go back and record a little supplemental to little extra piece to slip in, but it just it didn't work for me. My delivery was off. I wasn't really in extemporaneous speaking mode that night, and I left it out. And so, going forward, I am actually doing this podcast, and most of my other podcasts, I'm going to be doing them slightly differently, because free time is kind of at a premium, especially when you've got kids. Tonight, I have actually recorded this show, the bulk of this show, and all of the next edition of Select Game, which is my 
Odyssey 2 video game podcast, which hits around the 10th of each month. The intention going forward is that Select Game hits on the 10th, Grand Theme of Things hits on the 20th, Don't Give This Tape to Earl lands on the 30th. Since February didn't have a 30th, and never has a 30th, it's landing on the 1st of March this year. So there will probably be a second March edition of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. Be ready for that. But I'm going to try to record these a little bit more piecemeal and make it a little bit more modular. So if something does happen, like 24 hours, some big news that I would be more conspicuous if I did not mention than if I just glossed it over. I'm going to be doing things in a slightly more modular manner going forward with recording so I can... There is some opportunity to correct for that. see what's in the news this time around. NASA has announced that the Juno space probe orbiting Jupiter will not chance an engine burn and it will remain in its 53-day orbit around the giant planet. Basically what this is referring to is that on its second close pass of Jupiter last year Juno was supposed to fire its engine, circularize and kind of shrink its orbit in such a way that it would be zipping past Jupiter, you know, every couple of weeks or so. The valves in the engine started returning in error condition shortly before that burn, and it was decided not to fire the engine on schedule to leave it in this longer 53-day orbit. It will now return in this 53-day orbit. It will stay in this 53-day orbit, rather, for the entire duration of its mission. It'll still accomplish all of its science goals. It will just do so more slowly. And that's that's not that's not a bad thing. We still have a spacecraft intact to be discussing. Uh, this almost was not the case with the Akatsuki probe that Japan sent to the planet Venus, where it did not achieve its desired orbit because when they tried to fire up the main engine to slow it down to be captured by the planet's gravity, apparently the engine had grown too cold during its cruise from Earth to Venus and blew the, uh, blew the back half of the spacecraft off. It, the instruments are still working, the transmitter is still working, that's good. Akatsuki really lucked out. Uh, some spacecraft of a less hardy or less less compartmentalized design might not have survived that. So that's exactly the sort of thing that they are trying to avoid with Juno, is what they believe happened with Akatsuki. It's hard to get a spacecraft to Jupiter. It's a very expensive process of designing and building the spacecraft, and even so much as getting it there. So it's there, it can do its science in that 53-day orbit, 
and that means it'll have a little more recovery time between its you know, really close passes to Jupiter where it's slicing right through the magnetosphere that is so powerful it's been known to scramble computers on earlier spacecraft with less shielding. So the less time you spend in that soup, the better. SpaceX landed another rocket. They successfully delivered a dragon full of cargo and supplies to the International Space Station in February, and the rocket landed on land rather than the barge. Still, it's impressive. It's amazing. The video from these rockets, the live streaming video, just keeps getting better and better. We'll talk a little bit more about SpaceX and places in the solar system here shortly. But first, let's leave the solar system. NASA announced that they believe that they have found a solar system with seven Earth-sized planets, three of which are in the Goldilocks zone, where abundant liquid water may be able to accumulate on the surface, which would make for a hot mess that's perfect for the formation of life. Now, these planets are orbiting a red dwarf star tiny compared to our sun, really not much bigger than the planet Jupiter. So all seven of these planets, all of their orbits, are within a diameter smaller than the orbit of the planet Mercury around our sun. So what that means is, if you're on one of the outer planets, you're going to see the other planets zip by in your day or night sky, and the motion will actually be perceptible because their orbits are smaller, they're moving faster. It would be interesting if we can find out if these planets actually revolve around their own axes or if they're tidally locked. If they're tidally locked, chances of life um, aren't as good because that means you're baking one side of the planet and freezing the other. On April 14th, Netflix debuts the new season of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Now this was the season, the 13 episode season that was kickstarted by the show's fans in record time, which proves that I am not the only one who has felt the way that I have about Mystery Science Theater for the past almost 20 years now, which is if there is one show that I could uncancel by sheer force of will, never mind Firefly, it would be MST3K. This being Netflix, they will probably deposit all 13 episodes at once. For your pleasure, on April 14th, one day before the new season of Doctor Who. April could be pretty cool. April 14th, we'll also see the release of the movie Mission Control, The Unsung Heroes of Apollo. A story that you may think you've heard, but this one goes into more detail and stays, you know, this tells the story on the ground rather than the story in space. Now, speaking of going to the moon, SpaceX, there they are again, uh, they say that they're sending someone to the moon, or around the moon, actually, would be a better way to put it. They made an announcement that two individuals have paid for a private circumlunar mission in 2018. Basically, this would be a flight that goes to the moon, around the dark side. It doesn't go into an orbit. It's just on a free return trajectory. 
And of course, it would come back to Earth, and they are saying this would be a crude dragon. But the mission has been bought and paid for by two unidentified individuals. Uh, on Twitter, Richard Garriott, who once bought a tourist seat on a Soyuz flight to the International Space Station, uh, and also happens to be <laughs> the author of the Ultima Universe and its early games. He says it's not him. Apparently, a bunch of people tweeted him and said, Is this you? Uh, no, apparently not. Now, I'm sure by now we have all seen the cast photo that has been released of the main cast members and the directors of the upcoming Star Wars anthology Han Solo movie, which is a standalone depicting Han at a younger point in his life, long before he met Luke and Obi-Wan, the droids, and so on and so forth. It's a, it's a neat photo. However, I think my favorite part about the photo is that while the rest of the cast is mugging for the camera and they're just happy to be there, and, you know, I would be too, uh, Donald Glover is down there in this corner, and he's just giving you this look, and you realize he is in character. You know, the rest of these people are like, yes, the rest of my career is made. I'm going to hit the convention circuit, sign some autographs, and make some money. Donald Glover's down there saying, hello. I'm Lando Calrissian, the administrator of this establishment. Having trouble with your droids? Okay. Moving on. After several months of silence that followed CBS handing down guidelines for Star Trek fan films in 2016, Star Trek Continues, which has really sort of emerged as the the cream of the crop of that particular genre of amateur filmmaking, Star Trek Continues has announced that they are going to fold down after they complete and release the four remaining episodes that their most recent fundraiser paid for. The first one will make its debut on April 1st at a convention in Dallas. It will probably hit the internet either that same day or shortly afterward, and it features Rekha Sharma, from sci-fi's reboot of Battlestar Galactica. And after that, there will be three remaining episodes, the last one of which is apparently a series finale written by Hugo-winning science fiction author Robert J. Sawyer. Now, while my cats fight at my feet, I'll tell you <laughs> what a small world this is. I once helped to edit a book that was compiled by Robert J. Sawyer and David Gerald. It was called Boarding the Enterprise, and it was out, I'm going to say, in 2006, I believe it was. This would have been around the 40th anniversary of the premiere of Star Trek in 1966. The book originally came out in 2006. However, it was reprinted in 2016 with a different cover. However, I am assuming... <laughs> <laughs> that my credit for helping to fact-check and line-edit the book may still be in the very back of the book. So that was fun because it's a book that has essays by several people of all sorts of professional disciplines and all sorts of places in fandom and the pantheon of people involved in the production of Star Trek. So I could say 
quite accurately that I have edited works by DC Fontana and Norman Spinrad. Anyway, getting back on track, a Robert J. Sawyer script for Star Trek Continues is a wondrous thing to behold. I'm just really honked off that it has to be the last one. Um, I may piss a few people off saying this. Thanks a hell of a lot, Axanar. Thanks a whole hell of a lot. Because these guidelines were basically handed down because the makers of Axanar, Alec Peters in particular, just simply would not back down in the face of a lawsuit, which, as it turned out, put a lot of stuff on the public record indicating that the you know over a million dollars that were raised for Axanar almost none of it is still there to make the movie and Peters repeatedly threw the rest of filmmaking fandom under the bus basically trying to say hey you know these guys have been violating copyright worse than I have why are you coming after me that's not a very noble response and this is what that has cost us it seems like there's some sort of allegorical story that can be told about a public figure whose ego must be satiated and satisfied everyone else be damned this scenario reminds me of something finger on it. Speaking of Star Trek, CBS has announced that Star Trek Discovery will premiere quote-unquote by late summer or early fall. CBS, if you're listening, my birthday is in July. Just say it. On the other hand, premiere dates have been set and broken for Star Trek Discovery already, so we'll believe when seen. Let's go back to science, shall we? <laughs> Scientists have made their findings public in a study that they believe proves that New Zealand and New Caledonia are the core of a new continent that is forming. So everyone buy a, buy a little card and send it to the planet Earth. Congratulations! It's a Kraton! This kind of rewrites everything we thought we knew about continent formation, about seamounts, which are submerged volcanoes, and island chains, and so on. Kind of, uh, kind of makes you wonder what's going on with Hawaii or Iceland. I think Iceland is one that they really need to look at because that is a, you know, sort of an, it's an island country that is sitting on a spreading rift. And as the rift spreads, as the floor of the Atlantic Ocean widens, Lava comes up, becomes part of Iceland, Iceland gets bigger. At some point, it's going to be a fairly large little continent of its own. Fascinating stuff. Gotta love geology. Let's see what else. Way back, very first episode of this podcast, I was waxing rhapsodic about Pokemon Go. I wish to do so again because there are now 80 new Pokemon from the Johto region that you can now capture in the wild in Pokemon Go. Uh, I've captured probably about 20 of them so far myself. They're, you know, they are now fairly common. They're mixed in with, 
you know, yes, your Ratatas and your Pidgeys and your Ekans are all out there in great numbers. But the this whole slew of new Pokemon that you can find, they are fairly low-level combat scores. And so it's kind of like a, a nice little soft reboot of the whole game. If you feel like the game left you behind the first time around, this is an opportunity to jump back in and try it again. The only problem I have run into with it, and I don't know if this is just me or if it's happening to anyone else, it seems like the game is too too much game for my phone. It goes into kind of this... It's like the screen blows up bigger than the physical screen, and like you're zoomed in on it, and the phone just freezes. And it doesn't matter what you're doing in the game. It doesn't matter if you're you know, trying to walk to get an egg to hatch. It doesn't matter if you're actively trying to catch something. The game just freezes and lags, and sometimes it will unlag and go back to the lock screen of my phone. Sometimes it will reboot my phone. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But it's almost like there's too much program for the processor on my phone. Sadly, 2017 is... <laughs> it's not quite the caravan of death that 2016 was, but between February, between late January and February, we've lost several people, including Masaya Nakamura, who was the founder of Namco, which is the company that unleashed Pac-Man on the world from the safe confines of Japan. Namco is also the company behind such games as Dig Dug, Pole Position, Galaxian, Galaga many, many others. I have to point out Katamari Damashi simply because I <laughs> still adore the utter weirdness of that game even though most everyone else it seems has forgotten it by now. So Masaya Nakamura has left us. He did not design Pac-Man. There are a lot of erroneous headlines about that around the time of his death calling him the father of Pac-Man or the grandfather of Pac-Man he ran the company that published Pac-Man. He did not actually do anything with the game itself. That was generated by his employees. Still, this is someone who started a worldwide amusement business from very humble beginnings. Namco was started with two of these pneumatic horse rides. You know, like you you put a quarter in the slot, you climb on the horse, and the horse, you know, it doesn't quite do a, uh, you know, it's not quite a mechanical bull, but it kind of swings back and forth on a spring, and kids love it. Namco started up as two of those machines on the rooftop of a building in Tokyo, and then grew into the company that released Pac-Man. Of course, we lost Sir John Hurt in January, and it goes without saying that that hurts, because he had wound up with a whole new fandom as a result of portraying a mystery incarnation of the Doctor in Doctor Who in 2013, and he had kept playing that part for audio releases from Big Finish for the past several years, the last box set of which was released just a few weeks after he passed away. Sadly, the War Doctor is no more.
We also lost Richard Hatch, who played Apollo in the original 1970s iteration of Battlestar Galactica. By all accounts, a fantastically nice guy, very encouraging of fan creativity with all of the flavors of fandom that he no doubt ran into at convention appearances down through the years. And by all accounts, just a great guy to work with. Most recently, we lost also Bill Paxton, who you may remember from Aliens, from Predator 2, from The Terminator, from Weird Science, from Twister. Just, just gobs of movies, True Lies, Tombstone. I mean, I could just sit here for ten more minutes and rattle off movies that he was in. And the funny thing is, very few of those was he the top-line name star. He was in Twister, although I would even argue that even in the case of Twister, he was playing second fiddle to Helen Hunt, who was a big star at the time because she was still in the TV series Mad About You, and that was supposed to be, and was, her movie breakout role. Bill Paxton died at the age of 61 due to complications that arose after he underwent heart surgery. And he will very much be missed. So friends, let's talk bulletin board systems. When I declared 1999 the 10th anniversary of the logbook.com, what I really meant was that it was the 10th anniversary of the logbook itself, which started before most of us, including myself, was on the internet. The logbook started in the Fort Smith bulletin board system scene, which was, for the size of the town, incredibly active in the mid to late 1980s. This may have also been a function of just how little there is for kids to do in Fort Smith, you know, at least at the time. The BBS scene was bigger than you would expect for a community of this size. Now, if you weren't around in the BBS days, a little bit of a refresher course. There was no dial-up or persistent connection internet at the time. The internet simply was not a thing, unless you were at an academic institution. There were dial-up modems. You commanded your modem to call a phone number set aside for a specific BBS, and you would hear something like this. That's what you would have heard if you called my BBS in the late 1980s. But I had been on bulletin board systems even longer than I had been running my own. Longer than most people, in fact. If I'm not mistaken, and I'm kind of having to go off of memory here, I first started getting online when I was 11. Now, these days, that probably doesn't seem like a thing. When I was 11, I had to explain to my parents what a modem was and why I needed one. Let's rewind to 1983. I had had an Apple II compatible Franklin Ace 1000 for about two years at that point. I had played and programmed some simple games on it. And 
I'd also uh, gotten quite a software library amassed for it. Arcade ports, Infocom text adventures were really cool. There were quite a few others. Then I began about I began hearing about online services that required a modem. A modem in those days went for about one dollar per baud. One dollar per <laughs> one dollar per bit per second. So a three hundred baud modem would cost you somewhere in the neighborhood of about three hundred dollars. I remember my parents sucked in a really sharp breath and grudgingly got me a Hayes smart modem. At the time, I was wanting to get on such newfangled online services as CompuServe, and in fact, I did have a CompuServe account, at least until the free trial ran out. But the store from which we bought the modem, which was on Old Greenwood Road in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and it was called Bits and Bytes, they were the local Apple dealership. They helpfully told us that they ran their own online service, and unlike CompuServe, it was free. Hey, my folks were sold. It's important to note that a modem call to any kind of service, whether it was CompuServe or a bulletin board system, tied up the phone line being used. If my parents picked up the phone while I was online, they got an earful of this. It was about this time that Southwestern Bell rolled out a service called Call Waiting across the state of Arkansas. This is another arcane concept in the age of the cell phone that I'll have to explain to you. Call Waiting was the enemy of the dial-up phone modem. With two little beeps, it signaled that there was another voice call coming in. If you were on a modem and those two beeps interrupted your modem transmissions, that would probably hang up your modem-to-modem -modem call immediately. If you were on a BBS, boom, call waiting would disconnect you. After nearly a year of me raging over BBS calls killed by call waiting, and my parents raging equally over getting their eardrums killed every time they instinctively lifted a phone receiver to their ears while I was online, they had a second phone line installed at the house. This was not without some serious consternation. My little hobby, to call free BBSs now instead of a paid service like CompuServe was still incurring a monthly bill and I was never very far away from a reminder that my free calls were not in fact free. The Bits and Bytes BBS had no name. It was simply named after the software that it used which was Ward Christensen's public messaging system which worked out to the unfortunate abbreviation PMS. Hmm. No comment. Programmed in AppleSoft Basic, PMS offered minimum security. Anyone could log in under any name, and the store had opted to switch off any kind of password protection, which was actually an option within the PMS software. I recall that the PMS bulletin board was running on a dilapidated Apple II Plus in the back of the store with two 360K single-sided floppy drives. Five and a quarter inch floppies, not eight inch. I'm sure that's going to be your next question as to just how ancient this setup was. The PMS board was nominally operated for the benefit of the Western Arkansas Hardcore Apple Users Group. Hardcore Apple Users Group, abbreviated to a misspelled version of HOG, H-A-U-G. As in the Arkansas Razorbacks, as in, how about them hogs? 
My grandmother was alarmed about the other connotations of the word hardcore and made sure that my mother knew about her concerns repeatedly. And the funny thing is, before these conversations took place, I had no idea what the word hardcore meant in any other context, or indeed what those other contexts were. I was a naive, innocent, oblivious 11-year-old in early 1983, and I saw nothing wrong with telling all of my friends that I was now spending lots of time on the hardcore Apple users group's PMS system. Yeah. <clears throat> my friends at school, and this would have been around the second semester of fifth grade for me at the time, they had no idea about any of this techno voodoo that I was now spouting on a regular basis with modems and BBSs and calling PMS all the time for the hardcore Apple users group. I quickly learned that I was the spring chicken in an online community populated on average by much older people than myself, usually by a gap of at least 10 years. I had one friend in fifth grade whose parents had a modem in his computer, but when he asked them if he could use it to call the bulletin board systems that I had told him about, they shot that idea down. Probably not the worst decision they ever made. Now, really, in retrospect, my being online at that age was probably right up there with my mom letting me stay at the front of the local Safeway store when I was a kid, playing their Pac-Man upright with a handful of quarters that she left me, right by the front door where, in theory, anyone could have grabbed me and hauled me out of the store before anyone had a chance to really do anything about it. Obviously, that never happened because I'm sitting here talking to you about it, but you have to understand that the world was different back then. There was no expectation of bad things happening in the minds of reasonable parents. My participation in the hog continued. I began attending the meetings, which is when I noticed that I was consistently the youngest attendee by a good 10 to 15 years. I learned that the PMS SysOp, or System Operator, was with a gentleman by the name of Mitch Llewellyn. He was wanting to hand the reins of the BBS to someone else. And I mean, really, if you had an opportunity to hand PMS off to someone else, why wouldn't you? As I was so keen about the bulletin board system to the point of thinking that it was the hub of the club's activity, I offered to do it. I didn't check in with my parents before offering to do that. I just offered to do it. And no one else in the hog was even remotely as enthusiastic about the BBS as I was, so there wasn't even really an election. I was the only person who wanted to do it. Being a preteen sysop was not a glamorous job, but it was an interesting one. Once a week or so, one of my parents would drive me to Bits and Bites, which was all the way across town from where we lived. They would drop me off for an hour or so while they went shopping. I'd wave to the man at the front of the store and head to the back workbench where the Apple II Plus was running the bulletin board system, gathering dust in the meantime. I would have to log in locally and routinely do cleanup because deleting ancient messages from long-abandoned conversations was not something that the software was smart enough to do for itself. The PMS software itself took up a 5-inch floppy 360K total, leaving only the 360K on the blank disk in the second drive for any and all messages, public or private, any software uploads of public domain demo software, and so on. Everything had to fit in 360 kilobytes. 
Nowadays, that's not even enough memory to run anything that runs on your phone. You can even imagine having your entire world crammed into 360K. So what this meant was free space had to be opened up regularly. On more than one occasion, my parents remarked that I was basically working for free. Now, I wasn't doing anything else at the store. I was just sitting back there doing the BBS. So I was volunteering my time for the hog. I did it for the hog, baby. They went along with it because they hoped that maybe this would translate to me getting a real job at Bits and Bytes when I entered my teens. You know, something that would actually pay money. Or I think they were hoping that I was networking with people who might notice that I had computer talent usually associated with someone much older. Maybe one of those people would offer me a job down the road. A little spoiler here, that never happened. <clears throat> On one of these visits, I brought a blank floppy disk with me, and I copied the PMS board software. I had no idea what Bits and Bytes or the Hog had paid for that. I just made a copy. It wasn't copy protected in any way, and I wanted to take it home and study the code. More than anything, I was just really curious as to how it all worked. I began trying to tweak and add on to the code, including bolting some stupidly simple dungeon crawl games along the lines of my beloved Telengard that I played a lot on my Apple II, onto the existing PMS software. I was basically trying to create an online text-based Dungeons & Dragons style game, and incorporating it into the software so you could dump back to the menu and get back to reading messages or hang up or what have you. The next time I went to Bits and Bytes, I swapped the floppy from Drive 1 for a floppy I had brought in with me with my modified, souped-up version of the PMS software. I then got on the board and announced that PMS now had free online games. Everyone, come try it out. <laughs> there was a little bit of a problem that manifested itself within 24 hours of me doing that. Here's the problem. And again, this is going to deal with laughably low amounts of memory. I wrote my modified code on an Apple IIe compatible Franklin Ace 1000, which had 64K of RAM. The Apple II Plus that the store was running the bulletin board system on had only 48K of RAM, and so my modified board software was too big for it to keep in memory. The game worked just fine, but there wasn't enough RAM to hit the end of the loop of the game subroutine and return to the main menu. The program line to return to the board after the player had quit the game simply didn't exist as far as the Apple II Plus was concerned. Even if the player hung up their end of the connection, their modem, the Apple II Plus sat there, its modem tying up the phone line, making making it impossible for another call to come in. So I had really screwed up. The store employees were mildly impressed that I had tried to do this, but they were kind of annoyed that I hadn't cleared it with them before trying to implement it. And they were really annoyed at the thought that they now would have to be checking the status of the bulletin board computer every so often and possibly restarting the machine in addition to their normal duties at the store. This was not really a... Uh, this was not really a good point in my favor as the preteen sysop. <clears throat> this was also the first of many occasions that I gave myself over the years to be the laughing stock of what was now a growing BBS community. By this point, the local Commodore Computer Club, a friendly, all-ages monthly gathering of Commodore 64 and VIC-20 enthusiasts, had started their own BBS. Other individuals had started their own as well. 
There was one called Computer Domain, which was a PC-based BBS that offered online door games, proving to me that I was on the right track with my thinking about online games. I just really didn't have the coding skill to pull it off, and I didn't have a computer capable of running it. There was the Rainbow BBS, which was devoted to Tandy Color Computer users, also known as the Coco. It was run by a guy on the south side of Fort Smith who had his own video production gear, something which fascinated me to no end. There were now multiple bulletin board systems, there was cross-promotion going on all over the place, and there was competition going on all over the place. And it was really easy to find out how to annoy the sysop of a given board by over-promoting your board on their board. I probably straddled the line between annoying and amusing with my constant invitation to everybody to come experience PMS. Do it for the hog! However, by this point, my loyalties were divided. I had started up PMS 2. Because who doesn't want more PMS? The hog, that's who. I had a copy of the PMS software that I had made for myself, and I already had the second phone line. I'm sure you can see where this was going. I began running my own BBS using the PMS software, except that I had started from scratch, retaining none of the user IDs, messages, or uploads from the Apple Users Group bulletin board system. I continued my experimentation with online games built into the board software because I was running the BBS on a computer that had 64 whole K of memory. My attempts were now modestly more successful, but they were nothing like the fancy door games at that PC-based board. Now, if you're wondering if I missed my computer since it was running a BBS all the time, I didn't. It's worth pointing out that by this time I had a second Franklin Ace a fancy, sleek, black Franklin Ace 2200 with two built-in 5-inch floppy drives, 128K of memory, and a detached keyboard connected to the CPU by a coil cord thick enough to strangle somebody. Basically, they were aping the IBM PC form factor. Franklin was with this latest Apple II compatible. It was compatible with the Apple IIe Enhanced or the Apple IIc. Now this computer had been bought because with my older brother heading to college a year or so earlier, it was decided that he would take the Franklin Ace 1000. And I don't want to go into too much detail because it's his story, not mine, but he wound up not staying at the first college that he went to. He came back home, he brought the Franklin Ace 1000 with him, and it was returned to me, and so really what better was there to do with a second computer? that run a BBS on the second phone line. With my own bulletin board system to run, my parents felt that I needed to be spending less time at Bits and Bytes because I think they were kind of tired of taking me there. The hardcore Apple users group decided to shut down their BBS. The community had become a bit crowded. That kid that they had entrusted to run the board for them had stopped showing up regularly. And uh, quite frankly, no one else wanted to do it. They were tired of babysitting the machine. R.I.P. P.M.S. <clears throat> now, here's the part that you've been waiting <laughs> for someone to tell me since the beginning of this story. My mother gently suggested to me somewhere around this time that I should pick a cooler name for my bulletin board system than P.M.S. 2. <laughs> However, this kind of went down its own rabbit hole. This began a crazy tradition of strange B.B.S. names. The 
Extra disk drives that I obtained for my aging Franklin Ace 1000 became prone to chewing up floppies with a loud clanking, grinding sound. The sound of an overworn floppy with bad sectors singing me the song of its people and then going kaput. I would have to start afresh because the database had been wiped out and the messages along with it. So I'd start a new board at the same phone number, but for some reason I would rename the board every time in some strange attempt to convince everyone that it was under new management. In retrospect, I will admit to you, dear listener, I have no idea what the hell I was thinking. Some of the names <laughs> that I picked, the ones that I can remember, I mean, I'm sure there were a dozen more that I've forgotten. The ones that were used most often were Scorpio Stargate, which kind of sounds to me like it's the love child of Blake Seven and Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Because the uh, the ship in the last season of Blake Seven was Scorpio, and Buck Rogers was always going through Stargates. Another another BBS name. I think this one stuck around a bit longer than Scorpio Stargate was 10538 Overture, and it was run by me under the alias Mr. Blue Sky. So I he could tell I was hitting peak ELO fan at about this point. I'm sure I was in my teens by then. Okay, so let me level with you here. I sucked at running my own bulletin board systems. I was an insecure kid. I should have been calling other people's boards rather than running my own. I hinged way too much of my self-worth on whether or not that 300 baud modem was picking up very many calls. It, for the most part, the rest of the world had moved on to 1200 baud. I hadn't because there just wasn't the money to do so. This kind of reminds me of a decision I made about 20 years later or so to give up hand-coding every page of my website and start using a content management system that someone else had programmed because, here's the fun fact, I am better at creating content than I am at running the infrastructure. I kind of wish me now could go back to me then and save him a lot of trouble and a lot of embarrassment. Because by this point, I was about, oh, 13 years old, and teenage rivalries all but overran the local BBS scene. You could just about smell the hormones. Where I had once been an unusually young member of a predominantly 20, 30, or 40-something group, I was now the primary demographic, a teenager who was spending more time sitting in front of a computer with a modem than spending time being a normal, socializing teenager. I was missing out on social skills, and I was certainly missing out on self-discipline. Sometimes when uh, my memories of this point of my life float to the surface, carrying with them a reminder of the stupid things I did or said from the anonymity of my computer room, I feel like apologizing to anyone who has ever known me online anywhere. It's unfortunate that I was so tied up in running my own system because there was some really cool stuff happening on some of those other boards. Jeff Willard was the sysop of the Commodore Computer Club board when it first started up, and he was running a play-by-message board sci-fi role-playing game with these really cool paper handouts like hex maps and hand-drawn ships and creatures, maps of the star systems of the games, and so on. 
Commodore board in particular was bursting with participation, and there was a whole section of the board set up for SID music. A lot of it was hand-coded by a local man named Wayne Pace, who, as it turned out, lived in a trailer in eastern Oklahoma. But man, he could make a SID chip do anything. What we would now regard as retro chip tunes, he was a wizard at creating. I have no idea how he did it, and I really wish I had some of his stuff so I could play it. I, it was astounding to me at the time. I spent a lot of time hanging out with the Commodore crowd because there were more people my own age. And, you know, they seemed amused and tolerant of the fact that there was an Apple II kid in their midst. And before you ask, yes, I also got into some trouble. There was an older friend of mine who, through the practice of random war dialing, which basically is you set up your terminal program or you set up a program with a specific set of parameters, your local phone exchanges, for example, and you incrementally up the phone number by one digit. And you have it make a record of every time a computer picks up at the other end, it discards any numbers where a computer did not pick up on the other end. This was a term that was inspired by the movie War Games, and it was war dialing. And uh, a friend of mine had discovered that the local Greenlight Auto Store had an online ordering system. And I got to messing around with it just out of sheer boredom, probably because I pissed everyone else off in the BBS scene. And uh, just between you and me and the internet lamppost, I might have ordered some spark plugs. Might have been a lot of spark plugs. Okay. It was a whole lot of spark plugs. So you can imagine how elated my parents were, how happy that they were with me, when two FBI agents, in suits, with sunglasses, just like in the movies, showed up at the door of our house, wanting to speak to me, and they seemed kind of surprised that I was not older than I was. <sighs> I don't remember too much about that meeting, but I'm pretty sure I probably just about wet myself. It's a very gentle slap on the wrist that I got for doing that, but at the same time, how many 13-year-olds in the days before swatting and terroristic threats over the internet and just general douche canoe behavior, how many 13-year-olds got a visit from the FBI? I mean, living up to the men in black stereotype when they showed up on the doorstep. Of course, before I pat myself on the back for how amazingly cool that is, I should probably check. I'm probably still on a watch list somewhere. As I mentioned before, 1,200 baud modems were now common, and I was still trying to run a 300 baud BBS in the 1,200 baud world. It's a really good way to get left in the dust because, as you can probably do the math, we're talking about something that is about four times faster. PCs were now becoming the default system in the BBS world, a friend of mine named Steve Prado started an Apple II-based system called Jackalope Junction, which he later renamed Pseudocode. This was around 86 or 87 or so. 1200 baud was about to give way to 9600 baud, and then to 19.2k, then 28.8, 56k modems, and, you know, 56k, that was screaming fast if you would start it out in a 300 baud world. Now, by modern broadband internet standards, 56K, you could probably take a nap and order a pizza waiting for a page to load. 
My mother died in March of 1987. Don't worry, it's... Uh, it's from causes other than me giving her a heart attack by having the FBI show up. That <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> I had found a lot of support from people that I had met through the BBS scene. People who had been text on a screen had become real friends. In quite a few cases, they're lifelong friends that I still talk to today. Some of them are still around here. Some of them are in really far-flung parts of the world. And they still put up with me. Bless them. I was still pulling stupid stunts such as changing the name of my BBS every time it melted down, and it was kind of the beginning of a sea change in my thinking that I would like to think has served me well on the internet. Somewhere in there, I finally decided, you know what, just you be you. Treat everyone online as if they're within slapping radius of you. If you're wondering where this story intersects with that little thing we call the logbook, without which you probably would not be listening to this, in 1989, I began keeping track of cast and crew of episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and writing short summaries of each episode. I was obsessed with the show, and I did not miss it at all. I noticed that some actors were returning in different roles, and I was trying to track that. And for some reason, I must have thought I was the only one doing that at the time. That was the logbook. That was the beginning of the logbook. And it was distributed as a zip file full of text files, both on my painfully slow board and on Steve Prado's board. Now, at the time, I was using my BBS alias for my byline, which was Walter Wilbury. Apparently, I was a lost cousin of the traveling Wilburys. Who knew? And fun fact, Steve still calls me Walter to this day. I can't get him to stop. Steve's board was part of FidoNet, and he began distributing it on the FidoNet file backbone, which exchanged files between boards across the country and around the world. And suddenly, this little project of mine had a following. Sometime around the time I graduated high school in 1990, I shut down my bulletin board system. My second phone line was being used to call friends, and, oh my gosh, I was occasionally calling girls more often so it wasn't open to receive calls from other people's computers, which were basically not coming in anyway. However, there were enough calls still coming in that I asked my dad to have the number changed, which was not an insignificant expense at the time, but he agreed to it. I was working full-time in radio by the time I graduated, and I continued writing the logbook, expanding it to include... The original Star Trek, and then eventually, as they came along, newer shows like Deep Space Nine, Babylon 5, Voyager, Doctor Who, and so on. Those original summaries are still on the site. Give or take a few minor tweaks and corrections down through the years. As of 2019, the earliest logbook material for the early seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation, that material will be 30 years old. It's around 1995 when I was living on my own, working at the local Fox station, that I got on the internet. My friend Chris Bray lent me a little bit of web space on his personal account at the University of Arkansas server where he was attending school, and the logbook gradually slipped out of the BBS world and onto the web. Just about all of the Fort Smith bulletin board systems were gone by the mid to late 90s. So do I miss the BBS scene? Yeah. Yeah, I do. 
You only have to look at the most recent election to see that perhaps the masses are not as well versed in critical thinking as they should be in order to make proper use of the fantastic vehicle of information and self-expression that the internet represents. At the risk of sounding a bit elitist, the BBS era had something, there was a bar to entry. You had to be able to afford the modem. Oh, God, this does sound elitist. Never mind, never mind. It, yeah, you had to be able to afford a modem. You had to be able to afford your own phone line in order to play in that world. This sounds terrible. Yes, very elitist. You basically knew whose number you were calling. You knew who the sysops were, even if they hid behind weird aliases like Mr. Blue Sky. You'd see these people out and about, and you treated them with respect. The problem is, as time has worn on, the anonymity plus distance equation of the internet has changed that. Civility is dead. We don't look at the words on the screen and realize that another person put them there. Do I wish that the BBS days lasted longer than they did? Mm, not really. The online world should not be a country club. Getting back to that elitist argument that I was accidentally making and wish I hadn't. It shouldn't be a country club affordable only by those who can invest in the gear needed to access that world. Sometimes, however, I wish it was less overrun with disinformation. I wish people would remember how to treat other people, whether they are behind a screen or not. When your online world was as big as your hometown, and you knew you would be running into these other people in person you know, at the next Commodore Club meeting, you kind of remembered not to be a jerk. Your reputation did matter. Now, I had to rebuild mine quite a few times, because there were several instances where I was a jerk. Nowadays, we harass people into hiding and ruin lives. Well, I say we. I don't do that. I don't approve of that. But it is a thing that happens, especially on Twitter. You know, where you have doxing and other wonderful things like that. I really loved being a part of the dawn of the online world long before the internet was within the reach of the masses. Unless you two were there... I'm not really sure I can adequately explain what it was like, or why it mattered, or why it holds a special place in my heart. But, hopefully, me telling you all of these stories from my sordid BBS past get even a fraction of that across to you. Because I got online when I was a kid, and in a lot of ways I've never gotten off again. Oh, Let's reword that. are coming up. Well, wow. As you listen to this, a humongous and humongously expensive four-disc box set of music from Star Trek Voyager just dropped courtesy of La La Land Records. 
I don't know if I mentioned it on this podcast or not. I have started writing a soundtrack collecting column over at The Retroist called The Retroist Scoreboard, where I talk about releases as they come out from the various specialty soundtrack labels, which is something I keep up with, even if I really can't afford to do a whole lot of soundtrack collecting myself. Uh, Star Trek Voyager soundtrack. Um, this is going to surprise you. I'm taking a pass on it. It's not in my budget right now by a long shot. But furthermore, it seems like the entire box set, give or take maybe two instances, a handful of tracks, everything is from the seven of nine years onward. You know, the show was on before she was on the show. And there's a spider on my weather monitor. A big spider. Hi, spider. I'm going to keep talking if you don't mind. You just go do your thing and don't bother me. Yes, go to the back of the monitor where you're out of sight and out of mind. Maybe, uh, you know, get into the monitor and shock yourself. That would work fine by me. Bye bye So, there you go, the Star Trek Voyager soundtrack. I will include a link on the show page to my column over at the Retroist where I talk a little bit more about that. It's just I wasn't jazzed enough about what was on it to buy it. Really, some of my fondest memories of Star Trek Voyager are the early seasons. So, yeah, I was kind of let down. What I am not let down by is that this lets me save up a little bit more money by June because Funko is rolling out three and three-quarter inch reaction figures from the 1966 TV version of Batman. Now, I am not normally that much of a superhero guy, unless it's stuff that I grew up with, the TV shows I grew up with, or comics that I happened to grow up reading, like the Marvel Star Wars comics, you know, the ones that came after the first movie, where there was absolutely no idea where any of this was going and as such, there was no you know, no real limit to what you could do with it. And so, yeah, let's do the Magnificent Seven with a giant green rabbit. I am a huge fan of the trend in recent years to do these kind of... Uh, they, the collector term for them is Kenner-style action figures that sort of match the the articulation or lack of articulation of the old 1970s, early 80s Kenner Star Wars figures and sort of the level of detail. Now, these are wonderfully detailed. These really are not Kenner style. They have more points of articulation. They're more like, uh, they're more Mego style than Kenner style. Uh, the first wave has Batman and Robin and this fantastic Batmobile to scale. Also has Batgirl, Catwoman, the Bookworm, Mr. Freeze. And, and my favorite of all, King Tut. I loved King Tut on the old Batman TV show. I mean, who wouldn't? I just, I liked the actor. I liked him in that. I liked him when he showed up as Mr. Schubert in Man from Atlantis. I just, uh, <laughs> just a fan. I'm just a fan. Best of all, there's a second wave that Funko is going to have on the market, either in time for Christmas or early in 2018. And you can bet your sweet bippy, or if you're eating Chinese tonight, your sweet and sour bippy, if indeed you have a bippy that you feel like dipping in sweet and sour sauce, and what's a bippy? Moving on, 
They will have that out by Christmas or early 2018, and I would bet you good money that the second wave will feature the top-lining villains like the Penguin, the Riddler, and the Joker, who are very conspicuous by their absence in the first wave. So, that's awesome. Anyone, anyone who wants to get me something for birthday or Christmas this year, Batman figures. Yes, I'm going to be hitting the middle of my 40s this year. I don't care. Batman, baby. Batman. When my Batman figures do get here, they're going to have little arcade games to play. I don't know if you've seen these. Generally, you find them at Walmart. They are by a company called Basic Fun, which is a division of another company called The Bridge. I gather that The Bridge imports stuff from China or has it made over there and brought over here. But for 20 bucks a piece, you can get these little mini arcade games. And here's the thing. They actually work. They have little colored L LCD screens. They're kind of a they look like either the same size or possibly even the same actual display as the Atari Flashback Portable that I was raving about at Christmas. And they play really good versions of arcade games. They have the new ones that they have out that have the L C D screens are Centipede and Cubert. I'm gonna fire up Cubert here. Here it says Cubert, one player. And it really looks and sounds like Cubert. I mean, it's. There's your level intro screen. Little, little red joystick. And, I mean, this is almost. Oh! Cubert bit it. This is almost main quality emulation. Really impressive. I mean, it's not quite main quality. That's a little Cubert machine. It's really cute. Uh, it has it has a little marquee. It has side art. It has bezel artwork. It has a control panel overlay. It is a little arcade machine. I'm really impressed with the the form factor on these. And Centipede... I wasn't, I wasn't expecting Centipede to be as fun as it is because it has a joystick instead of the trackball of the arcade game. But it's still quite a lot of fun. Like I said, these, uh, find these at Walmart for about 20 bucks a pop. Kind of expensive toys, um, but a lot of fun. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how far down the rabbit hole I'm going to go with these if they keep making them. You know, I'm not really sure my action figures need a working arcade to their name. <laughs> But yeah, just these two, these are a lot of fun. So, basic fun. There are a lot of basic fun. Very well done, basic fun. And one last little bit of discussion of goodies that I've either gotten or would love to be able to get. The Art of Atari poster book 
is coming out later this year. We talked about this last time, but a little more information is out there now. It is going to have 40 posters that you can pull out and hang or frame. Do whatever you like with them. I'm I'm hoping these are single-sided posters and not double-sided posters, but they're going to be big. The book's not really going to be cheap. It's going to be about 20 bucks, but uh, 20 bucks gets you 40 posters. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm in for that. I will need some frames, and I'll need at least one copy of that poster book, the uh, the Art of Atari poster book by Tim Lapatino. I will include a link to pre-order that on the show page at thelogbook.com slash this tape. Now, friends, unlike a lot of <laughs> unlike a lot of the previous editions of Don't Give This Tape to Earl, I am going to leave you with something to think about at the end of this show that perhaps contradicts what I was just saying about online civility and anonymity. I'm a big fan of the Verity podcast, which I cannot describe better than the phrase that they use to describe themselves on their website, which is six smart women discussing Doctor Who. What is not to love about that? I'll post a link to the Verity podcast on my show page so you can hear it and experience it for yourself. It's a lot of fun. One of their listeners on Twitter started a bit of a kerfuffle by posting this incredibly passive-aggressive suggestion to the ladies of the Verity podcast that perhaps they should not mention politics at all in the course of their podcast. Now, there's a bit of a problem with that. One of the central themes that is consistently featured in the Verity podcast is feminism. And unfortunately, you can't, it, it seems we can't unpoliticize that particular topic. And this is a phenomenon that I call stay in your lane. You know, someone hears you or reads you saying something even vaguely political. Oh, please, stay in your lane. Keep doing what you were doing before this. You didn't used to be this political. I've actually lost a couple of Facebook friends over this. You know, you didn't used to be this political. You're no fun anymore. Stay in your lane. Goodbye. Um... Why should I? Why should they over at that podcast that I listen to? My friend Scott Patterson, who is... I, I'm loving his crusade to preserve the medium of video games. He's been told to stay in his lane. When, in fact, he is as political as he ever was. Why should he? It's his page. The Verity Podcast, that's their podcast. You have the right to turn it off, read something else, be somewhere else. The problem is we are getting into a situation where I think even most cool-headed people who don't normally get that political 
are realizing that the stakes have changed, that they are higher, that there is something very fundamentally wrong going on in the American political scene right now, and people who wouldn't normally be that political are getting to where they no longer see a point in staying in their lane. They feel a need to get out and do something about it. That includes me, by the way. I try not to overload my Twitter feed or my Facebook page, you know, my personal Facebook page with politics, but it's gotten to the point where I'm less shy about saying something about it. I usually still try to be funny about it, because that's just, that's my personality. You can uh, get more flies with honey than with vinegar. But the point is, the stakes have changed to the point. The stakes are too high. There is more to lose by staying in your lane, by staying silent, by sitting on your hands, by doing and saying nothing. There's more to lose. There's nothing to gain by staying quiet, and I always interpret these stay-in-your-lane requests, whether they're directed at me or whether they're directed at my friends, whether they're directed to people who don't know me from Adam but whose podcasts I listen to. I always interpret that as, you are displeasing me by stating a worldview that I disagree with. Well, listen to something else. You know what I would actually like to listen to? And maybe, you know, at least a couple of shows. Maybe someone can point me in the direction of something like this. I would like to hear a podcast where conservatives explain to me how they can be huge fans of Star Trek. Because Star Trek is such a liberal, left-leaning worldview. And yet you have... You have some really conservative-leaning people who are really into Star Trek, and I find myself wondering, how does that even work? So maybe someone can point me to a podcast that will educate me, because I am not afraid to step outside of my worldview and accept outside information. And maybe folks who are asking me to stay in my lane should be a little bit more accepting of that, too. Thanks for listening to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. You can find the podcast at thelogbook.com slash this tape on FeedBurner and on iTunes every month that it's produced. If you like this and The Logbook's other podcasts, feel free to support us at patreon.com slash thelogbook. Your support has a direct impact on site hosting costs, podcast production, and other great content. Don't Give This Tape to Earl was written, produced, and hosted by Earl Green. That's me. I also did the music. And that means you probably shouldn't give a synthesizer to Earl either. Especially not if there's a tape nearby. (laughs) 